Hello and welcome to the second half of my conversation with Samantha. If you haven't listened to the first half, I suggest that you go back and listen to that episode first. If you have listened to that already, well, um, in this episode you will hear me and Samantha talking about how Samantha helps learners deal with anxiety, a simple technique for dealing with anxiety, advice on how to overcome a fear of flying, which is something that my partner, Aloha, suffers from. Like she becomes, I, I don't know, I don't know how to deal with that because every time we fly, um, she she's unbearable, okay? She becomes an unbearable person and uh, I don't know what to do. Uh, but, I, but Samantha gave me some advice on this. Then changing your thoughts to avoid anxiety and fear, which is actually the, um, the title of this episode. And then you will hear me and Samantha talking about my fear of not being able to sleep because I read this bloody book about sleeping, about sleep, and um, I learned too much about sleep. And after reading that book, I couldn't sleep for one month. Like, I had insomnia for one month. I don't recommend, I, I really don't recommend reading that book. If you are an hypochondriac, like I am. Um, but Samantha gave me some advice. And actually, Samantha suffers from this. Suffered, or, or at least used to suffer from insomnia. But anyway, at the end of the episode, I will tell you about something that I changed my mind about. Because in this episode I said something, but um, I changed my mind about something that I said in this episode. So maybe you want to listen to that, I don't know. Um, get ready now. Guess what? It's story time. And do you help your clients deal with anxiety when they speak English? Because lots of learners they you know they might feel anxious when they speak because they yeah. they feel you said it before they might be comfortable talking about you know their jobs and giving advice in in Italian for example but uh when it comes to English then bye bye i mean it's uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know. yeah i like how you put that so bye bye how how do you like, do you help your clients deal with anxiety as well? I mean, how can you yeah. do? What can you do if someone is anxious when when they speak a foreign language? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So, from my personal experience, in, in terms of working through the anxiety that they're having when it comes to speaking English, I would say my biggest sort of tool that I've been able to to pull from is my personal experience working in English and French, and a lot of these people are experiencing anxiety when it comes to speaking English or this feeling of imposter syndrome because it's a language that really is a second language for them. Hmm. And so I feel like I'm able to connect with that on, on quite a strong level because even though English and French are both what I'd consider native languages for me, I still experience that sensation. So the sensation that I'm experiencing is what they're experiencing most of the time, but amplified, I would assume. 
And so all of the strategies that I've used for myself are what I try to personally apply with them. But it's really interesting, actually, um, <laughs> because I'm working with experts of the brain and the mind, right? Mm-hmm. So when I'm working with these people, I often find myself thinking, how can I approach this and, and kind of w- help them work through this anxiety with regards to language in a way that doesn't feel redundant or, or useless to them because they are the, the experts around this. And so <clears throat> I kind of have to approach it or I feel like I have to approach it cautiously and make sure I'm not giving them useless information. Hmm. But what I've found over time is that they actually don't know how to treat their language anxiety. And so they might be experts in anxiety and experts of the brain and, and you know, applying, you know, cognitive techniques to change their way of thinking. But when it comes to their own sort of struggles with the language, it's something that they just can't work past. <laughs> and I guess what I've learned from that is that even if we have the tools to succeed somewhere, when it comes to our own performance, it's always helpful, depending on our situation. Um, but I think it, it can always potentially be beneficial to have somebody walk us through those steps in a particular context, like language context, right? Hmm. Um because I, I, I think it's a lot harder to apply these things on ourselves at times. Um, but some of the things that I do are actually, so one thing that I really like doing is having them record themselves. So what I'll do is have them prepare like a mini presentation, um, or sometimes they've already done a workshop or a presentation uh, on a specific you know, mental health topic previously in, in the past few years, for example. So they don't even have to reinvent the wheel. They can just take something they've already worked with and delivered. Mm -hmm. Then I'll just have them send me a WhatsApp message. And this is something I often do outside of our coaching sessions, just because in our coaching sessions, we're usually covering a lot of, you know, content and having conversations. Mm -hmm. But um, I'll have them record themselves and then they'll kind of go through that presentation once and then we'll listen to it. They'll send it to me and then they'll listen to it back again. Um, and I think you actually talked about this in a certain article or something, right? About recording yourself. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I love doing this. Anyway, so so they'll listen to themselves that second time, to- the first time, and then record it again. A lot of the time, it's just a lot of fillers that they're using and like ums and ahs and things like that. And there's this sort of sense of, I guess, anticipation with moving forward with their sentence or another struggle I see a lot is kind of just going off on a tangent and rambling. And I think, oh my God, you could have cut that explanation down to about five seconds, right? Mm -hmm. And after they hear themselves, they're actually able to do it completely on their own. And then I make them, so once they've actually gone through this exercise, recording themselves once, listening to it, improving it and recording it again, I ask them, what was the difference in the sensation that you experienced? How did you feel physically in your body? What were some of the thoughts and emotions? Because typically when we're feeling anxiety, we can actually start to mindfully notice what's occurring. Um, so maybe they felt like their their tongue was getting a bit dry, their heart was starting to race. Um, maybe they were just feeling a little bit tense, right? Tension in the shoulders. Hmm. And so once they actually take note of the difference in their performance that second time and start to realize, yeah, as soon as I kind of refined that and cut it down to about five seconds instead of 30 seconds, my confidence totally increased and I didn't experience those same sensations in my body. And so that's kind of how, that's one example, but in general, how I work with them. So we take note of those sort of sensations and the experience that they're having in one scenario 
then we work through it and see, okay, how did you feel when we did this the second time in an improved way? Hmm. Um, and typically it's about cutting down that speaking time. And, uh, and yeah, usually there's, there's quite a big difference in how they feel. So would you say that to feel le- less anxious, you, you would need to repeat the same task? Yeah. Okay. I, I think that's actually a great way to put it. Yeah. So when <clears throat> we're talking about um, any sort of, you know, anxiety or overcoming fear, we as humans have a tendency to want to avoid it. Um, <clears throat> so our go-to response in any sort of anxiety or fear situation is avoidance of that particular stimuli or that trigger. But what we want to do to overcome anxiety, and this is why exposure therapy is one of the, the leading treatments when it comes to anxiety, is actually expose ourselves to that stimuli. Oh. And so if you take exposure therapy, for example, um, the whole premise behind it is repeating the exposure to whatever stimuli is fearful for you and um, prolonging that over time. Let's say you have a fear of bridges, right? Um, over time, treatment for that is going to be Go to a bridge. Going and crossing. Yeah, Mm. exactly. Go to a bridge. Mm. Um, So it might be a small little footbridge at first. And then you'll maybe stand on that bridge or walk back and forth across it four or five times. You want to kind of push yourself to the point where you feel like that anxiety level hits its peak and then comes back down. Then what you want to do is increase that. So maybe that went okay. And you felt like you were able to do that four or five times. Anxiety kind of hit its limit, and then you were able to, you know, stop that exercise. Hmm. The next time you're going to want to do it a bit longer and you're going to want to find a longer bridge. So you're going to essentially extend your exposure um, or extend the the duration of the, or the distance, I would say, and prolong that exposure. So spend more time there too. And so it's the same thing with anxiety, right? Or Hmm. sorry, with uh, anxiety around language speaking. If we start avoiding that trigger, we're only going to increase that fear around it. Huh. And so I think you put it perfectly. Whenever we have that experience um, of anxiety with language speaking, just do it again. Keep exposing yourself and keep prolonging that exposure, essentially. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's you start off by speaking to somebody for five minutes, right? And over time, you're going to be able to actually deliver a workshop on you know, mm. anxiety and depression in the English language. Mm. I have two questions. The first one is, why is my girlfriend still anxious when, when we're flying? She's flown around the world. She's, she went to Australia. She went to New Zealand. Uh, we often travel and we, you know, we, we fly. But every time, she's like she she panics. Well, yeah. not panics, but you know she she's anxious, visibly anxious. But w- w- what can she do, for example? Yeah, so <clears throat> that's a really good question. Um, when it comes to specific phobias, it can be a little bit more difficult to treat just because we're only sort of isolating that phobia, right? So if she has a specific phobia of flying and that's something in particular uh, that really sort of elicits that anxiety, what she's likely going to want to do is repeat exposure to that. But I mean, how often can you get in a plane and actually expose yourself to that stimulus? Mm. Essentially only when you're traveling. Yeah. So that makes it a little bit difficult. When you're in a situation where you have a specific phobia and you're able to replicate that environment, 
that can be one way to go about it. Um, she could even do visualizations, right? And and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, an expert in exposure therapy by any means. I've never sort of, you know, guided somebody through it. But the, the basics of it would be to sort of emulate that environment. So she could do a visualization, um, picture herself on that plane flying. If that elicits some form of anxiety, we're already sort of replicating the scenario a little bit. She can sit there with that sensation, maybe even have an audio file on, right, of being, you know, in a plane, the sounds that might be occurring in a plane, and just sit with those emotions. Sit with them. A mindfulness meditation can be really helpful. Deep breathing, focusing on the breathing. Mm -hmm. And at least in that scenario, she knows she's not in any real danger, right? Mm -hmm. But being able to replicate that environment as closely as possible um, and sort of working on calming those physical sensations that are occurring as they're occurring um, can be one way to to hopefully combat that and, and help at least decrease the symptoms before she gets okay. on that plane the next time. Okay, so this basically... You're saying that we need to expose. We we need to keep constantly, constantly keep ourselves. Sorry, constantly keep going into a this. this I can't say it. Constantly keep going <laughs> in, into our own this discomfort zone. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I, um, I said it. I, I... <laughs> That was, that was a tough one. But yeah, that's that's actually exactly it. And it's really counterintuitive, right? When we think we want to avoid the things that make us anxious, but any avoidance is only going to strengthen the threat of that stimulus. Hmm. And that's really what that... Have you heard of the fight or flight response? Uh, what's, what's that? Fighter? It's the, the fight or flight response. Hmm. So essentially what the fight or flight, I, I don't know if it's more of a North American term that we use. Yeah, I've heard of flight, uh, fight or flight or the, yeah. or the other way around. Um, yeah, exactly. You can, you can switch them. But um, that, that's essentially our response to fear. So whenever, we're, whenever we perceive a stimulus as either dangerous or, or threatening, and that's the key word there, perceived. Um, it doesn't mean it's actually a threat, hmm. but if we have that perception of something being dangerous, automatically that fight or flight system is going to take off. And so, <clears throat> well, maybe I'll ask you, what, what would we do there? If we're perceiving something as dangerous or threatening and that fight or flight system is taking off, where would we want to start? What would be our solution? I don't know. <laughs> It sounds more complicated than it is, but it all starts with our thoughts. So as soon as we're perceiving something as dangerous, let's say we're in a situation where, um, I don't know, our our boss asks us to, to go and see them in their office or something. Mm, danger. And danger. we get this. Mm. Yeah, exactly. We see this threat and we perceive it as, oh my God, I did something wrong. I'm going to get fired. Right. Mm. But if we can change that perception and say, you know, maybe they actually just want to congratulate me or maybe, you know, they want to help me or have me collaborate on a great project. Mm. If we can change our thoughts, that entire fight or flight cycle can be halted essentially. Mm. Because what happens is if we perceive that danger, what happens in our body? We start to feel that, you know, tension, that racing heart, our palms might get sweaty, uh, our mouth might get dry, things like that, right? 
And after those physical sensations, we start to feel afraid. So we have this feeling of fear and like we need to just escape that scenario. Like it's dangerous to us. And then a chemical response starts occurring in our body. So our things like even our digestive system, our reproductive system, these things all come to a halt and things like cortisol and uh, norepinephrine, adrenaline are released. There's all these chemical changes that are occurring, but the ultimate goal is to have us um, kind of receive a boost of energy to either fight or flee a dangerous situation. And in that scenario, yes, of course, if we were being attacked by an animal in, you know... uh, In the woods of Canada. Yes, exactly. In the dangerous woods of Canada, that would be helpful. And so that anxiety and that response is helpful in that scenario. And that's why it's built into us. And that's kind of what I meant when I said that it was, you know, a, a beneficial system before and an essential system. But when these types of responses and that physical response in the body starts in sort of these everyday situations that we experience, like anxiety around language or anxiety around, you know, our boss calling them into their office or something like that, um, that's obviously not helpful, right? And that just takes a toll on our body. It starts damaging. It causes damage to our cells because that cortisol actually turns into um, adrenaline. We start actually experiencing changes that are no longer helpful in that scenario, but are more a chronic stress in terms of, they're, they're more like a chronic stress scenario. And I guess we just wanna keep in mind that even though anxiety is useful for us, most of us are experiencing anxiety in a way that's not actually beneficial at all. Mm. And so you wanna expose yourself to it and say, what's occurring here? Why am I responding in this way? And maybe I can change my thoughts around this whole thing so that this cycle doesn't start, right? And if we change that perception to start, um, that's really the whole basis of what they call cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's not the only you know, therapy, it's just the one that I'm the most comfortable and knowledgeable in. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, okay. that's essentially how that works. And like, I, I feel anxious when I know that the next day there's an alarm clock that will uh, sound or go off. What's the right yeah. one? Which one is the you right one? You can say either. Okay. Yeah, the alarm clock sounds, goes off. Yeah, both. I, I feel anxious because I'm feeling like, okay, tonight I know that I'm not going to sleep well or I'm not going to sleep at all because uh, there is this alarm clock and the more I think that I have to sleep before the alarm goes off, the more I can't sleep and the more I get anxious and nervous and the next day, uh, it's a disaster. And this happened because I read a medical book on sleep, the topic of sleep. <laughs> and it was a, a brilliant book, a brilliant book. Like it, it's well explained. It's called uh, Why We Sleep by Matthew. Right, yes. Do you familiar. know it? Okay. Matthew mm-hmm. Matthew Walker. I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes if people are interested. The author doesn't say at the beginning of the book that the information that you're about to read will be, if you are an hypochondriac like me, they will, you know, this is not a a good book that, this is not a book that will make you sleep. This is a book that, (laughs) you know, will cause insomnia (laughs) 
because you start <laughs> you start knowing all these things about sleep, why we sleep, why it's important to sleep, what happens when we sleep. And after after I finished that book, I couldn't sleep because I was like, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm I'm not sleeping now. And all these benefits, you know, that I can get from yeah. sleeping, I'm not getting all these benefits. And I was anxious. Luckily, then, you know, I don't know how, but I'm fine now. <laughs> but <laughs> Thankfully. But still, this thing with the alarm clock is still there. Like, it happened, I think, two two days ago, two, three days ago, that I had the alarm clock. And this is why I sleep in a different room, because... My partner and I don't sleep in the same room because of this thing, because she wakes up at 6.30 in the morning and I I can't have an alarm clock at 6.30 in the morning anymore. This is why yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do if one day I will have another, you know, a, a job that uh, requires me to wake up at that time. So yeah, what's your advice here? Okay, so number one, Fabio, I 100% resonate with this because I've had the same anxiety. I went through insomnia for a long time, and it was really just around that same mechanism, right? That fear of not sleeping and that alarm clock going off. And that's actually why I never read that book, Why We Sleep, (laughs) because I read the back cover and I was like, I don't think this is good for me Um, as like a really big ruminator. Yeah. And a hypochondriac, I thought... I'm sure this is interesting, but, but it just might not be for me. So I'm glad you've <laughs> you've given me that that trigger warning. But yeah, so it, this is a whole uh, treatment in and of itself. But I talked about cognitive behavioral therapy and and the mechanism behind it be, really being changing our thoughts with regards to something, right? And so CBT for insomnia, they actually call it CBTI. So it's it's CBT for people experiencing insomnia in particular, works with that same mechanism. So it it focuses on exploring that connection between the way we think, um, the things that we do in general, and how we sleep. And so during treatment, the whole idea is retraining our way of our perception of sleep and identifying those sort of, um, I guess, detrimental thoughts and feelings with regards to sleep, um, even behaviors that are contributing to our lack of sleep. And so I actually went through CBT for insomnia because I was struggling with it really severely at one point, at one point in time, um, actually when I was living in Halifax. So it was all in that same scenario, right? You can see how all that anxiety was connected, but, um, so CBT for insomnia really challenges you to, change those habits. So let's say you're going through um, a period of insomnia and you find yourself just lying there awake, stressed about not sleeping, right? Stressed about that alarm clock going off, um, stressed about making sure you get those eight hours because or else your body's going to suffer Mm. and you're going Mm. to live less long and all of these sort of um, negative thoughts. But when you're in that scenario, you actually want to eliminate the time that you're going to spend in bed. That was sort of groundbreaking information number one for me. Hmm. So I would lie there in bed for hours at a time and not be able to fall asleep because I was so anxious. And so actually (laughs) I was instructed to not go to bed and stay awake until whatever amount of time um, it took for me to feel sleepy. So there's a difference between being tired and feeling sleepy. Mm -hmm. And that was something I had to learn to differentiate. And so I might say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I should go to bed at 10 o'clock. 
but actually I wasn't sleepy yet. My eyes weren't closing. It wasn't impossible to stay awake. And what I had to do was stay awake until it was really time for me to just knock right out. And so sometimes I would only sleep three hours a night, Hmm. but over time it became, or bed became a place where I wasn't anxious and I wasn't afraid about sleeping. It was just the place I slept. Um, So you can see how that kind of trains or, or retrains your way of thinking. That place where you're not sleeping and you're feeling anxious no longer becomes that place. And so you eliminate that feeling of anxiety in your bedroom and you move it to the living room and you just wait till you get sleepy and then you go to bed. So it's quite a complex um, training. You, you really need to figure out how many hours am I sleeping per night on average over the course of a week if my average amount of sleep is three hours per night and I wake up at 7 a.m., then I should only go, go to bed at around 3.30, 4 a.m. Wow. And that was really, really difficult. Um, But in the end, I was able to reassociate the bedroom with not being a stressful place. And because I was realizing I'm actually getting through the day on, you know, three, four hours of sleep and I'm okay, I'm not dying. That in and of itself was enough to kind of reassure me in my ways of thinking. And so it took that, again, that repeated exposure to that stimuli, right? That fear of not sleeping. I was doing it and I was fine. Um, But eventually your body kind of overcomes that fear. And it's a combination of working through that anxiety and also just letting your body kind of take take control, right? And at a certain point, you're so fatigued that you will sleep. I see. So I, I, I don't know if that really answers your question without actually kind of going through CBT for insomnia yourself. Yeah, well, um, it's not that I yeah. suffer from insomnia, but... Um... I have a fear. But that anxiety around the fear. Yeah, yeah or yeah, the yeah. fear around it. So, I mean, I would say, honestly, when you're thinking about, you know, I, I'm not going to sleep the next day or, or sorry, I'm not going to sleep enough tonight and I'm going to be tired the next day and it's going to be detrimental. Um, even though it's difficult, it's really just a matter of self-talk and walking yourself through that. So what is the worst that's going to happen? Well, probably the worst that's going to happen is I might not be my most productive self tomorrow, right? And is that really the end of the world? And you can Mm. kind of ask yourself those probing questions. Or maybe, how many times have I done this before? How many times have I had this fear in the past? And what really occurred? Is there any sort of evidence behind, you know, my experiences to support that, you know, not sleeping a full eight hours tonight is going to be detrimental? And actually, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Providing that evidence. Yeah. Like making language mistakes. Like what's the worst right. that can happen? Yeah. Like the worst that can happen yeah. is that you're in you're insult somebody because because of your yeah. mistake and you might get a slap in the face. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, you know, that's the, the worst thing that can happen if you make a language mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually sounds terrible. <laughs> the slap in the face at least. <laughs> but yeah, in but... most circumstances, even that won't happen. Exactly. So you can rest assured. You can, yeah, you can sleep easy exactly. at night. <laughs> okay, Samantha, I think um, how can people uh, get in touch with you? Yeah, good question. I have um, my LinkedIn page is probably where I'm most active at the moment. So they can check me out. Maybe I don't know if you have my my name written in the the podcast notes, but yeah, uh, on LinkedIn, it will be there. Awesome. And then I have uh, my website as well is uh, consciouscounselingtherapy.com. 
Uh, so if anybody wants to check that out, that's another option. And um, yeah, I, I would say those are the, the two best places to start. Great, great. Uh, all the links will be in the show notes as always when I have a guest. And thank you, Samantha. We'll catch you next time. Thank you so much, Fabio. All right, we're back. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Samantha. I think it was a great conversation. I learned quite a lot about anxiety and fear and how to deal with anxiety. Thankfully, I don't suffer a lot from anxiety. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll never know. In the episode, I said that the worst thing that can happen when you make a language mistake is that you might insult somebody because maybe, you know, instead of saying you can't, you say another thing, uh, which I'm not going to say here, and you might get a slap in the face. This is what I said towards the end of the episode. So that's the worst that can happen. But actually, something uh, worse than this can happen. And what's this thing? Well, imagine a doctor making a language mistake, giving wrong instructions, giving prescribing the wrong thing because of a pronunciation mistake or a pronunciation problem. Imagine um, a flight, uh, a pilot. Imagine a pilot communicating with the control tower and not being able to speak good English. That doesn't happen, okay? That doesn't happen because pilots have must have great English, I, I, I hope. But there are situations where mistakes can affect safety. And I learned this by interviewing another teacher who helps medical, who helps uh, doctors and nurses and people who work in hospitals. Her name is Rachel Williams. I will publish this episode uh, in the next few weeks. So that's what I wanted to tell you about um, mistakes. So I, I've changed my mind. Usually we say, well, you know, you don't worry about mistakes. Well, no, if you're a doctor, well, probably you should worry about how you pronounce things when you give um, when you give medical advice. And if you're a pilot, please have great English. Otherwise, um, you know, my girlfriend Aloha will never take a trip with me anymore. All right. I really hope you enjoyed this second half of the podcast in future episodes. I will have a conversation with Rachel Williams, with Paul Clark, the grammar detective. So I'm, I'm very active on this podcast. I love doing this. So if you like it, well, subscribe, review, share with your friends, um, write about it on social media, tag me, uh, make an Instagram story, tag me on Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, um, Twitter, and on Telegram too. Open a WhatsApp group and tell all your friends that this is the most amazing podcast you've ever listened in your life. No, of course, you don't have to do any of this. Um, I actually get quite annoyed when at the end of a 
of a video or of an episode, they say, comment, like, and share, comment, and like. No, I won't do it. I, w I was about to do it, I wanted to do it, but now, because you've said this, I'm not going to do it. I really liked you. I really loved your podcast, your video, until you said, comment, like, and subscribe. So, sorry, no like for you. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, on the 22nd of May, so in about three days, my reading club is starting, and you can still join. It's a non-fiction book club where we read and discuss Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. A great way to work on your speaking and writing, meet new people and um, learn from a great book. It's a book that I've read twice. Even if you don't want to join the, the book club, read Ego is the Enemy. I'll put the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope that you will join the next episode of Stolaroid Stories with another true story. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.